Well, this morning as we read through this text, if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that there are words throughout that give you this sense of exile, but also family. There are all kinds of words that point you towards that direction. Now, uh, as I was reading through this text, it reminded me of a song by Sister Sledge. I don't know if y'all have ever heard of Sister Sledge. We are family, right? I know you weren't thinking you were going to hear that this morning. Uh, I got all my sisters and me and all that kind of stuff. But um, the second verse is interesting. Because she's, she's praising this, this family that she senses with her, with her girls, right? And she says this, Living life is fun and we've just begun to get our share of the world's delights. High, high hopes we have for the future and our goals in sight. We, we don't need to get depressed because here's what we call our golden rule. Have faith in you and the things you do. You won't go wrong. This is my our family jewel. Uh, I mean, basically, it's you do you, and it's going to work out great. That's the philosophy of this song. In fact, I, I think that this song could be the song of Babylon. Uh, it could be the, the theme song, the anthem for that kingdom, the kingdom of this world. You do you, and it's going to work out in the future. Don't worry about it. You've got your friends. Uh, you've got your family jewel. This golden rule that's not necessarily biblical, and you can follow it. That's the kind of course that you will hear in this world. But by contrast, contrast that with another song by Samuel Stinnett, a hymn, a hymn by the title of Jordan's Stormy Banks, one that we have sung often. He writes in his hymn, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Different kind of view of the world, right? And I, I cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. Now, now, do you see the difference in worldview in those songs there? See, here we have a, a vision of a song of a kingdom that says, I am right now on Jordan's stormy banks. The world is full of chaos. It's coming in on me. And, and the thing that is sort of tethering and anchoring my soul in this moment is that sight of what is to come. Completely different view of the world. Completely different song. See, his home is not ultimately on the stormy banks. He understands that. It's the new Jerusalem. That's what gives him hope. That is where his family, the family of God, is bound. Isn't that good news? That this is not what all that is? That we have more that we are looking forward to? Come on, Sunday morning, that's good news or we wouldn't be awake, right? Well, this morning we're wrapping up our Hopeful Exile series with 1 Peter 5, 12 to 14, where we're going to see that Peter is encouraging the family of God to stand firm on Jordan's stormy banks. Now, by way of recap... Uh, you'll remember that Peter has been writing to uh, a number of churches in Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. And, and these Christians have been experiencing what we can tell is all kinds of persecutions. They're, they're differing and varying in degrees. Uh, some of those persecutions have been the kind of like sort of uh, social ostracization that you'll feel at maybe a family cookout where people are kind of like not wanting to talk to you because you want to talk about Jesus and stuff. Or on the other side, you might have a group of people who are experiencing at times, not always, but sporadically, a kind of political persecution uh, where they're actually maybe even being imprisoned for their faith. Now Christians, as Peter wants us to understand in, in this context felt a lot like Daniel and his three amigos in Babylon. Do you remember that story? If you read the book of Daniel, you'll find that he had uh, he and his three friends who were persecuted for their faith. And, and maybe you can see the connection as you re have read through the book, how Peter's Christian diaspora, those sojourners or exiles in Asia Minor, 
really did experience something kind of like what Old Testament believers, Daniel and his friends, experienced in Babylon when they were exiled out of Judah. See, Jews, as they were exiled, they would have experienced the loss of family, homes, earthly possessions, their land, their temple, and their king. Everything familiar would have shifted, leaving them feeling like strangers far from home in a foreign land with strange foods, a new language, false gods, and gods that accepted sexual practices that were contrary to the will of God. See, the geographical and political change led to daily trials for them. But with Christians, the nature of the trials is actually an issue of the heart. Do you see that? It's, it's not that they feel out of place because the geography has changed. It is because their nature has changed. What we find in this letter is that it's likely that many of the Christians of Asia Minor were not exiles due to a change of their zip code, but due to a change of their heart. You'll remember that Peter signaled this at the beginning of the letter when he wrote, according to his great mercy, he, being God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. It is kept for you in heaven who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. See, this new birth reoriented their whole perception of the world in such a way that they find themselves at odds with society and the society that they live in. Now, we've received an alien grace that makes us aliens in our own homes. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like you're different because you are a Christian, it probably means that you are a Christian. You should feel like an alien. And if this morning you're here and you're like, I don't feel much like an alien around like my non-Christian friends, then maybe we need to talk again about the gospel. Maybe you haven't experienced the beauty, all of the beauty of what God wants to do in you and through you. See, what this means is our new primary address is heavenly, not earthly. We, we, we recognize that. We were not made for this place. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We feel like outsiders because of what God has done on the inside of us. Now, our big idea this morning is this. It's that the elect family of God should stand firm in the grace of God. The elect family of God should stand firm in the grace of God. The first thing we see is in the first part of verse 12. We see a tip of the hat to the, the family language. Notice uh, here that we find hopeful exiles are family. Uh, he begins in verse 12 by saying this. Peter writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, let's just pause there for a minute. I wonder what Peter means when he says, I have written briefly to you by Silvanus, who is a faithful brother. Uh, Silvanus is really just a Latin uh, translation of Silas. Silas that you have probably read about if you've read through Acts. You've seen a lot about Silas and through the New Testament. You'll see that um, he was present with a lot of significant events. Uh, but I wonder why it is that he calls him a faithful brother. Uh, maybe you haven't thought about this, how sometimes in the scriptures you see people mentioning each other as brothers. Well, this doesn't mean that Peter and Silas shared the same last name. That's not what he's saying. No, Silas was Peter's brother from another mother, right? He was uh, a brother by virtue not of his physical relationship with him, but, but spiritually by his relationship to him in the sense that because they are united 
by faith to Christ. They have God as their father. And so now they were part of a, a family together, the family of God. Now, Silas preached in Corinth. We see that in 2 Corinthians 2.19. If we're trying to think about why is he a faithful brother, I think we get some clues in the scriptures. He, he preached in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2.19. He planted a church in Philippi with Paul. He carried the decision of the Jerusalem council to Antioch in Acts 15. And then you'll remember that Silas and Paul were stripped and beaten for casting a demon out of a girl in Acts 16. And Acts 16.25 tells us they were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them by midnight. Now just think about that for a second. Silas, what kind of brother was Silas? Silas was the kind of brother who was stripped and beaten and thrown into prison and was singing about the glory of God at midnight. Never lost sight of the joy of the Lord. Now, I just want to draw attention to this because this is beautiful. What better messenger could deliver the message to the churches that they should not consider their suffering strange or absent of grace or purposeless? Silas carried the scars of suffering and the joy of the Lord along with this letter to these elect exiles. He says, I'm not speaking as one who does not understand what it means to suffer for Christ. I'm the guy that suffers and loves Jesus and sings to the glory of his name, and I want to invite you up into that. It's a great messenger for this kind of message. And he goes on, we find here, uh, to show us, if we look at Silas closely, that he is a faithful brother, a member of the family of hopeful exiles. Now, one of the things that I've I've loved to see at our church uh, over the last decade is the way that increasingly people are referring to themselves as sister and brother. Uh, They they sense that. They sense the the family nature of what's going on here and what the Lord is doing. And that encourages, uh, I think, other brother Christians and and pastors and elders here at Trinity Bible Church because that title just signals a a picture of family, a picture of, of warmth. And a, a home away from home. That, that's the picture that you should get when you hear those kinds of titles. Now, I know that many people, uh, I counsel lots of folks, and I know a, a lot of you when, you, when you hear the word family, you think of something that is, is, is sad and dark and something that you want to kind of undo. But the beauty of this is, is that we find out through the Bible that family is something that God created. It is something that is meant to be good and joyful and hopeful and helpful and life-giving. And the hope is is that if you have a bad home, that you can come into God's home and see what home should really look like. That's what we hope here, that you feel like the family of God. Now, here's why I think this is important. Uh, There there have been a number of studies that have shown that there are a lot of megachurches that are really growing, and and they're actually absorbing people from small churches that are dying. And um, I'm not against megachurches. I think good churches can be large or small. But one of the things that did concern me is Duke did a study of these churches. And they asked, what is it that you value that you are finding in these mega churches that is driving you to them. And they found that there was like unequivocally one thing that sort of rose above the, bet, the rest as far as what they valued, and it was this, anonymity. We love the anonymity that we can have, that we can show up, not really get bothered or like entangled, and then kind of leave. Now, when you think about that, here's the problem that I see. The New Testament, as I read it, says true Christianity values family and accountability. And don't miss this, anonymity is the opposite of the accountability that the Bible says is true to basic Christianity. And we need to be known. We, we need to know others. We need to be held accountable. We need family. That's what God has made us for. So I'm just curious this morning as we're getting started, how are you being intentional about knowing others and being known? You know, we as your elders, we are constantly trying to create 
spaces where you can form relationships with others. Uh, spaces in community groups, in Bible studies, uh, in, in other one-to-one discipleship relationships. But how are you being strategic and intentional about building community into your life such that you are being known? Well, let me just encourage you this morning that you were made to be known, and God has given you human people to help shepherd and care for your soul. You need that. That's basic need for, for humanity. So what are you doing? You know, meaningful relationships will come within the context of the family of God, and they require time, faithfulness, transparency, and prayer. So be steadfast in pursuing this family. I know that many people often say it's so hard, and I would say just be steadfast in pursuing it and asking God all the while to give you increasingly meaningful relationships here at Trinity, trusting that God is for you in that and that he really will provide relationships if you come and seek them and are faithful. But there's a second thing that we see in this text. Notice this. Verse 12b, it says this, stand firm in this grace. Stand firm in this grace. Now listen close because Peter is here, I believe, laying out the purpose of the letter overall. He says this in 12b. He says, uh, not only uh, have I sent this letter through Sylvanus um, to you and I've written briefly, but he says this, I've done this exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. Now, Exhorting and declaring uh, might have some nuanced meanings to them. So exhorting kind of carries this idea of urging someone towards like an action, uh, whereas declaring is, is kind of this idea of stating something that is true, affirming this is what truth is. And, and Peter seems to be saying, I've been doing both. I have been all the way throughout telling you, here's what the grace of God is, and here's how you ought to live in light of it. So there's a real sense in which I believe that as you look at declaring, it's kind of a picture of the gospel indicatives that we found throughout. Here's what the grace of God is. Let me just show you the glories of God. And then exhorting throughout is kind of urging you to how you respond with those imperatives. So those are the gospel imperatives that we have found throughout this book. And he's been doing both all the way throughout. Now notice what he's declaring and exhorting. He says, this is what I've been declaring and exhorting, that this is the true grace of God. But what is this? Well, it's the true grace of God, but what is this thing that is the true grace of God? Well, you'll remember that the letter began in verse 1-2, speaking of grace. So he opened up saying grace is important. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Anybody here want grace and peace multiplied to them? I'll take like a double order of that today. Thank you. And then Don Carson writes this. He says, from beginning to end, this epistle points us to the grace of God in causing us to be born again to a living hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the whole letter of 1 Peter is what this is. This whole letter is about the grace of God. And that's what he's summing up here. This is the true grace of God that I've been talking about that I've been trying to, 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 to unfold and unravel so that you can see the, the variegated beauty of it. And this letter, I, I think it reminds us again and again that suffering is the road to glory. Suffering is the road to glory. See, first comes the cross, and then comes the crown. And, and all of this flows from our faith union with Jesus Christ, who is the objective ground of our present confidence amidst trials and our future hope of ultimate peace or shalom being at home with God 
It, it is all grounded in union with Christ. And see, this is the true grace of God, suffering, then glory. Of course, I think Peter assumes that this means there is a danger in believing in false models of grace. Did you know there are like false models of grace that could be either dangerous or deadly? Like you can just be like just off and it ruin your life because you're not viewing God right. You're not understanding the nature of what it means to be at peace with God. It can, it can really mess things up. And so we want to make sure that we understand what the true grace of God is. And, and how can we stand in the true grace of God if we don't know what the true grace of God is? Well, I think there are a number of ways that we can see false grace. You know, false grace would tell you things like suffering means that God has abandoned you. Is that a view of grace maybe that you've held? That you're suffering, maybe even right now, and you're thinking like, just maybe in your heart, does this mean that God has abandoned me? He's left me alone. False grace would say that all of the blessings of God are present. In other words, if, if God is good, then it needs to be right now. And if it's not right now, then something's wrong. It, it, there's no sort of understanding that that there might be something more. So we just need to kind of use the Christian version of eat, drink, and be merry because there's not really much else outside of this. Or maybe false grace would claim that suffering means that God is against you, not just that he's left you alone, but that he is actively against you. See, false grace suggests that if you suffer, it is always because you aren't doing Christianity right. Or that God is not cannot and will not bring good even through our worst experiences. Like those are the kinds of ideas that we have about false grace. And false grace undersells the future that awaits the children of God. It always does that. And don't miss this. False grace will not lead you to becoming a faithful brother like Sylvanus. That's not what happens. If you are not loving the true grace and standing in the true grace like him, you won't make it to be the kind of guy or girl that God looks at and his people look at and say, there is a faithful person who understands true grace. See, false grace leads to faithlessness. When things get tough, you'll cut and run from God and from his people. And that's why Peter spent a whole letter meticulously outlining what true grace looks like. It looks like Jesus who traveled from the cross to the crown. It's standing firm in true grace that leads to steadfastness and family. It's only that that really creates the kind of meaningful relationships that you long for, that you were made for. And I love Peter's command here for Christians. Notice that he says, this grace, this true grace, I want you to stand firm in it. Don't move. Like, get a good position. I want you to be firm in this true grace that is yours. Now, Kieran Job's writing of this text says this. He says, Peter's stated concern implies that the situation about God's work and presence in their lives and that the temptation to abandon or at least waver in the Christian faith was a real and present possibility. I think Peter's looking at the congregations and he's seeing other Christians who are facing difficult times and he's hearing these stories about people that he loves who are walking away, who are walking away from God and others. And and he's writing and he's saying, I just want to be very clear about the nature of true grace so that you stand firm in it and you're not deceived as to what you've been signing up for. See, Peter fears that they will abandon true grace amidst their persecutions and sufferings. And he tells them, stand firm in this grace. It kind of reminds me when the Israelites saw the Egyptians hot on their trail 
as Moses was leading them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. You remember that story? And, and as Pharaoh grew near, his armies were coming after them, the Israelites, as they saw the whites of their eyes, asked if God had just led them into the desert to die. And in Exodus 14, 13, Moses replied in this way. He said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you will have only to be silent. And God released the waters that he had peeled back so that Israel could go through. And he put them back where he he took them from and laid them upon the great and mighty army of Egypt. And they did not ever see the army, that great and powerful army, again. What an image of the way that God shows his power for his people when they are standing firm for him knowing that God is at any moment able to completely obliterate, annihilate, and wipe off the face of the planet the thing that you thought you were hopeless before. That's the hand of the God that we stand firm in. That's the power of the grace that we are invited into. See, standing firm means looking at the armies of Pharaoh in the eye with no defense but God and trusting that he is more than enough. See, the opposite of standing firm is to be unstable. James speaks of this in, in James 1.8. You'll remember it's, it's like being the, the double-minded man who is like the, the waves of the ocean that the wind pushes back and forth. And, you know, it's like, well, I hear one thing and I'm driven this way and another thing and that way. And you're just kind of like tossed all over the place, but you're not firm. You're not just trusting God. You're always blown back and forth. And God says, I want better for you than that. I want you to be faithful and steadfast so that you actually magnify the goodness of the glory of God and show that there's nowhere to go, there's no reason to go anywhere else for anything else because God is God and He's good enough. That's what God calls His people to do, is He calls them to stand firm. Our stability comes from standing firm in God's grace. It is not because we are stronger than other Christians, it is because we understand acutely our weakness and our need for God and God alone, and that apart from His grace, we will not stand. See, small things can knock you over if you're not positioned well. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Uh, I like to wrestle with my kids. Now, I outweigh my seven-year-old Jack by like 150 pounds, right? Uh, And when we wrestle, what he's learned is, is that if one of the big brothers can knock dad in a certain area, that he can come in for the kill and actually knock dad over. And that like rocks his world. Like when he sees Superman go down, he is like, I am Lex Luthor, right? Well, why is it that he is able, a guy of that size, to knock his dad over? It shouldn't be possible, like the sizes, right? Well, it's because dad wasn't standing firm. He didn't have his feet about him. He wasn't ready for it. And spiritually, it's the same way. If we are not ready, if we are not prepared daily, preparing our hearts and our souls and our minds for the devil that's prowling around and all of those forces and winds that are looking to knock us off balance, then we're going to easily be knocked off balance. That's what Peter's saying. Standing firm means that we need to trust in God. Now, what does standing firm look like? Well, I think it looks like not doubting that God is for us in our suffering. And the future is incredibly bright even when your kids deny Christ. Even when your your husband gets cancer. Even when your your best friend disowns you. Or or when you lose your job for not going along with the world. It, It looks like making meals for others when your son just broke his foot. Or celebrating the engagement of a friend when you're single and you long for that. It's seeking wise, trustworthy counselors to remind you of God's grace when you want to retreat and huddle in your own doubting thoughts. 
It looks like constantly casting your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. Even if that next care that you heap on him looks so much like the last care that you heaped on him. You continue to go and to heap trusting God. It looks like living out meaningful membership in the life of a local church who loves you and whom you love and whom you seek to have that familial relationship with. And don't miss this. Grace has gripped every believer in Christ. And every believer in Christ must grip grace. Both of those are true. You have been gripped by grace, by a mighty act of God. And you are invited and called and commanded to grip the grace of God. Both of those things need to happen. Now, the indicative of grace enables and invites us to live in the imperatives of that grace. But there's a third thing that we see here, that the elect bride is in Babylon. The elect bride is in Babylon. You'll see that in verse 13. Now, you'll notice as we begin to read this that Peter also mentions Mark or also John Mark here. He's a young follower of Jesus who has been discipled by Peter. Uh, And Peter sees him as a a son. So here again, kind of a family-type relationship. Uh, Peter seems to be saying that through this sonship relationship, he has been actually investing in him, probably discipling him as a mentor. And so uh, that is their relationship. Uh, It's interesting. uh, History tells us that Mark probably wrote his gospel, if you remember, based on the sermons that he heard Peter preach. So there was a close relationship between these two folks. That's a great way to grow up spiritually, to have a mentor like Mark did with Peter. Peter who says, I'm going to be a spiritual father to Mark, who I'm going to treat as a son. I'm going to care for him. I'm going to invest in him spiritually and otherwise. You know, many men don't have physical fathers who are spiritual. I have men that disciple all the time that that they lament the fact that they didn't have a father who discipled them in the home. Um, And I I take two things from that. One, um, fathers that have sons and daughters um, don't let that be the testimony of your home. Uh, don't, don't seek to be a, a rock star discipler. Just be faithful in discipleship, taking your kids to the word, trusting him, praying for him, admitting that you're not good at it, but to trust Jesus is doing more than what you can do. And second, we just need to recognize as a body that we have lots of young men who want to be mature in Christ who have never had anybody take them under their wing. Uh, it, we need everybody kind of all hands on deck for making disciples with our young men. And guess what? That's not just true with men. That's true with our women. Our women need to be discipled. And so uh, we need to be about the business of discipling one another so that we can say that we have fathers and sons in the faith to the glory of God. But Peter says here, take note, stand firm in grace, and then immediately reminds them of God's initiative and salvation. I think that's what he's doing here. He's reminding them of God's initiative. Uh, Notice what he says in verse 13. He says this. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen... Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Now, this verse connects the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, where Peter writes to the dispersion or sojourners in Babylon. So, you'll remember what we said earlier, that Daniel and his three amigos were sent out of Judah into exile in Babylon, somewhere around 586 B.C. Um, Judah is exiled to Babylon. And when they, they did that, they had to leave everything that they knew, everything that was familiar, to enter into a strange Land. Everything was strange from the the food to the people to the languages to the gods to the practices. It was just strange. And it's in that context you'll remember that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are all constantly trying to be faithful to God, even at great cost. So uh, you'll remember Daniel. 
Daniel faced the lion's den for refusing to not pray to his God. Now just think about that for a minute. How many of us struggle to pray daily? And, And how many of us would be less likely to pray if we knew that we might get eaten by lions? Well, we know that we might get eaten by lions because Satan's a lion who's looking to like, devour us. And so we need to be like Daniel and be prepared for the lions. But we need to pray. And what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He experienced the, they experienced the furnace for refusing to worship the king as God. You see how the culture is really heating up around them? And they're being faithful in that context. And I think those are the kinds of images that Peter wants to bring to mind for these Christians as they're struggling with the culture around them. But don't miss this. By the time that Peter wrote this letter, this is just fun stuff. By the time that he wrote this letter, the great kingdom of Babylon that intimidated the people of God and the whole world of that day had been wiped off the map and left in ruins. It no longer existed. So why would Peter bring up Babylon? What is Peter talking about? I mean, Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Why would you, why'd you bring that stuff up? Well, in the Old Testament and Revelation, Babylon has become somewhat of a metaphor, of a picture, representing those who are opposed to God. And I love the image because it's an image that is carried out throughout the Bible and it reminds us of the nature of those who oppose God. So you'll remember in Isaiah 13, 19, Isaiah speaks about Babylon in one of the oracles and he's speaking against Babylon and he says, let me give you a snapshot of why They're going down. He says, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. See, Babylon, it it represents those who are outside of the grace of God, who are going to face the wrath of God. Reminding Christians they are exiles in a strange land. I, I, I love this picture. Babylon no longer exists. Egypt was wiped off the face of the map before the glory of God as people stood firm. And I think this Babylon imagery, he could have said Rome, he could have said any other nation that existed in that day, but he says Babylon, but he said, let me just go ahead and tell you how this story ends. God wins every time. Babylon is gone, Rome will be gone, and any other nation that comes afterwards that is Rome-like or Babylon-like or like Sodom and Gomorrah will be absolutely eradicated before the glory of God. See, Babylon represents Rome in Peter's day. And if you're new to Christianity, I think this is something really important to think about. See, the Bible says that left to ourselves, in other words, apart from a mighty work of God and us going and pursuing God by faith, our citizenship is in Babylon and none of us are okay. That's our default setting. See, we we don't just need a self-help lecture from Tony Robbins to sort of get our lives on the right path. That's not what the Bible says. See, it's not a self-help book to like how to have a better marriage. Like it's got plenty of wisdom for that and power for that in the gospel, but that's not the main point. See, the main point is about something much greater. The Bible says that we are sinners and rebels against the one true triune God who created us for his glory. He owns us and we have disobeyed him and need God to save us from his just wrath. We need to be saved by God from God. So if you're not a part of God's kingdom, you're not, you're not a part of this thing. And what that means is, is that you are living in sin in the kingdom of darkness. You're in Babylon. And you might not have even known it. But God says the future is not good apart from a special act of his grace in Jesus Christ in which you must stand. 
His son came to die for our sins upon the cross. He is the Christ who came to bring you peace with God. And unless you stand in that grace, you will not stand on the last day. You will not stand when Christ comes back to bring justice. There are no high hopes for those who are not in Christ. See, if you not put your faith in Christ and joined a local church as a local assembly or embassy of God's grace, then please talk to me after the service. I would love to talk to you about what it looks like to be part of the people of God. See, those united in King Jesus become part of his kingdom family. That is what God intends for you. Because notice that Peter speaks of she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Did you notice that? See, this isn't a literal woman or Peter's wife, as some have suggested. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think this speaks of the church as a people of God that Peter is writing from. It carries that sort of John 17, 14 sense, right? John 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father and his high priestly prayer, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, right? Just as I am not of the world. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. Uh, She is in Babylon. Did you notice that? But doesn't say she is of Babylon. We are in the world, but not of the world. 2 John 1.1 goes on to give us a description of the church as a lady, where we find in the very first verses that it is the chosen lady and her children uh, that is spoken of as the church. Of course, I think this likely is connected with other uh, sort of metaphors that we find in the Bible to describe our relationship with Christ. Uh, You'll remember that there is also this strong metaphor of the bride of Christ being the church. So that if we are the bride of Christ, then it makes sense that we would be referred to as a she instead of a he, right? Because we are his. And so here again, I think we might even see a hint at a kind of familial language. It's the kind of thing that you might see in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23, where Jesus Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. And this points to the one flesh type unity between Christ and his body. So that we are family. We're family of God and we're actually united with God through Christ. That's the connection that we have. So Peter says, she is likewise chosen. Now, the word for chosen to describe the bride of Christ, the the she, this church that is in Babylon but not of Babylon, is is actually the same word for elect that you'll find in 1 Peter 1.1 where we began with elect exiles. So she's an elect bride, a chosen bride. Now, the word that is used here for uh, the elect is, is actually a little bit different. It has a prefix on it. And, and it, it, in the Greek, it basically means that you are chosen with. Not just chosen, but chosen with others. You are chosen into a family. Something you might not see in the, in the original. But like he's saying, you are chosen together. You are part of a people. Which I think says election is a mark of the people of God. Isn't that a, a good thought? Everybody that is in the family of God, is chosen. Nobody accidentally came in. Nobody, like, cheated to get in. Like, you were elected. You were chosen in by God. It was purposeful. He has you here for a reason, for the glory of his name. God did it on purpose. He was purposeful. He chose you. Man, there's not much more beautiful than that. It's adoption if you're thinking about it in relational terms. You know, he chose the kids. He didn't get stuck with them like my kids did. It was a joke. I got the best kids in the world. That's true. In a democratic society, elects might confuse the idea of how Peter views them. 
See, Peter's not saying that we campaigned with God and stuck vote for me, you know, yard signs in the neighborhood asking people to vote for us. It's not like we started wearing a a vote for Pedro t-shirt and asked, you know, Napoleon Dynamite if he would dance to get us in. Like, we didn't have to do that. We didn't dance to get in. We didn't wear t-shirts. We didn't, like, uh, tell God about how great we were. Uh, The Bible, actually, when it speaks of election, doesn't say that we did any of those things. Peter's not saying that God saw what a good case that these Christians made for themselves, and then God threw his vote their way because of their works, their talents, their good deeds, their potential, or their future good decision. That's not what the Bible says about God's election. It is God's initiative. See, elect in the Bible speaks to God's initiative in choosing people to enter into covenant relationship with himself. In fact, God's choosing looks upside down according to the world's standards. Moses describes what election meant for the status of Israel as God's people under the Mosaic Covenant. He he says, here's what it looks like for you to be the people of God and for me to elect you. In Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, he writes this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose you. And you're like, man, can we just stop right there? Thank you, God. I feel special right now. And God goes, I'm not done. Wait. Verse 7. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God chose Israel. Didn't choose Israel because Israel was great. He actually chose them because they were not. Now this reminds me a, a little bit of the sandlot. I've shared the story before where Scotty Small is new to a town and he's wanting to play baseball just to kind of make friends and get some kind of sense of community. And he, he's just really unathletic, you know, um, I don't really know any people like that, but he's really unathletic, and so apparently it's hard for them to make friends. Uh, That's what I'm told. And so, as he's trying to, like, get into the group, he's trying to figure out how to do this baseball thing, and he meets this guy, Benny the Jet, that's, like, the opposite. He's, like, super athletic. He's good at everything that he does. He's really cool. He wears a hat well, and he just wants to be like this guy. And he shows up to the baseball field one day, and all the kids are mocking him and laughing at him. And Benny the Jet says, hey, look, it's fine. Like, he's good. Like, watch this. Gives him a glove. He goes out there. He says, look, I just want you to hold this glove up. I'm going to hit you a fly ball. You're going to catch this, and then everybody's going to love you. So here, here's what you do. Just stand out there. Hold it up. Here we go. And so he goes back, and he takes a ball up, and he just whacks it, and he hits it. And everybody's watching like, this isn't going to be good. And it lands, like, right in his mitt. And everybody's like amazed that Smalls caught it. Like, how did he do that? Everybody. You know the only person that's not amazed by it? Benny the Jet. You know why? Because Benny knows that it was all about what Benny did to make Smalls catch that ball. I think that's the same way that we find God's grace. Like the reason that we catch, the reason that we glorify him, it's not because there's something intrinsically great about him, but it's because he, he helps us to glorify him through the power of his spirit. It is him making much of himself through us. And that's exactly the kind of grace that we are called to stand in in this text, trusting that God has elected us, that he might make his glory known in us, not because of us, but because of who he is. The ground of his love for us that is given in the Bible is the glory of his name. And if you want to go further than that, he says it's because of the great love with which he's loved us. It's like, well, that's, that's getting close and that's good, but anything beyond that, that's where the mystery begins. And we just have to trust God that he chooses based on his own good priorities.
In fact, in Ephesians 2, 4, it says the only reason for God choosing is to be found within God himself. He says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. It was God's initiative that made us elect exiles. Uh, John Owen speaks about this, uh, or the Savoy Declaration that he helped write. It's a a statement of faith, and and in it he, he writes this about God's election. Here's what he says. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his holy begotten Son, according to a covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he died, or he did from all eternity, give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Just think about that for a second. When you're feeling nervous about where you stand with God, God says, you are part of something that is not momentary but eternal. I have set my love on you, and I'm not turning back for my purposes for you. I will surely bring to completion what I have started. See, this is the grace that we stand in, an eternal way to grace. Babylon passes away and is forgotten in the dust as God carries on his eternal purposes for his beloved bride. But catch this, third, I mean fourth, we are to greet one another like family. We are to greet one another like family in verse 14 quickly. Uh, You'll notice that Peter closes with a call for the kiss of love. Um, I'm I'm guessing that's why we had a lot of single people show up this week. That's that's not what we're talking about. Um, I know that's a thing some places. Uh, But Paul speaks of a a holy kiss. This isn't unique to to Peter. Uh, He expresses uh, in that holy kiss a love between members in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians. In fact, Paul closes Romans in 16.16 saying, Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. So it seems to be a kind of greeting that was taking place in this community that, that spoke of family. This is the way that we love one another as family. Uh, Tom Schreiner writes, the love between members should be comparable to the love that exists in a healthy family. Now, the greetings with a kiss were, of course, to be pure and unstained from any kind of sexual love. So the main point, of course, is not the kiss, but the thing that it signified, which is a mutual love for one another. And, of course, that love flowed from their union with Christ. I really believe that we are loving with the very affections of Christ. So adoption is the the relational equivalent of election, and it pictures a new family with a new dad and a new brothers and sisters who who live family together. They have a a meal together like we're about to take when they gather, showing that we are all around this table together equally enjoying what Christ has given. And together they experience a foreshadowing of the peace of God as they await the ultimate peace of God that will arrive when all of us arrive at home with God in the new heavens and the new earth. See, the elect exilic bride that we are, uh, that we are, <clears throat> the elect exilic bride that we are will face suffering, but glory is coming. God will restore all that has been lost for those who stand firm in the grace of God to the end because God holds them. That's what Peter wants to remind them of. A day is coming. He wants to say, a day is coming. I want to put your eyes forward to the coming day. A day is coming when God will restore all that has been lost even due to sin. That day's coming. 
Those things that, that bog you down and might sort of cause you to, to waver one way or the next and get knocked over. He says, a day's coming when that's going to be dealt with. Uh, there's a day coming where God will repay all that has been sacrificed for the gospel a hundredfold. Where you will see that the sacrifices that you have made and you're wondering, is it worth it? He'll show you that it is more than worth it. And where every sickness will be healed. All of those sicknesses, those chronic illnesses, the pain that you just can't get away from, that you feel like you will never have victory over, there's coming a day when you will be healed. You will be well. You will walk in fullness. There's a day coming when every tear will be wiped away along with so many sorrows. Death will finally and ultimately be put to death. Satan and all of his works will be no more. You don't have to worry about the lion anymore. Our desire for sin will be removed forever. Those sins that you feel like you just you can't ever get away from those sinful desires. There's a day coming when they will be no more. This fallen world will be restored and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now, we will have uninterrupted peace with God and our eternal family. I don't know if y'all have ever had a good Thanksgiving or a good like, vacation. Some of you are like, I'm still waiting. We're still trying. But maybe you've had a moment. A moment of beauty that you were like, this is amazing. I wish I could just bottle this up and keep this on a shelf and live there. And I want you to know that that is the moment and that brief moment, as brief as it may be, that is just a small footnote reminding you of what is to come in full. What a day. And our joy will reach historic highs with the promise of more and more to come forever and ever. Think about it. More and more joy forever and ever. Stand firm in this grace, knowing that it is just for a little while in comparison to the weight of glory that is coming. Let's pray.